Good morning. If you can flip with me to Acts 12, we're getting on near having hung out together in Acts for a solid year, which is pretty awesome. Um, recognize that's just one talk a month, but it is cool. It's been uh, good for me to marinate in Acts as well. Uh, you guys mentioned mentioned paintball, I have to tell you that just yesterday I played paintball with a bunch of middle schoolers, um, and as I was coming to church this morning, my wife pointed out blue paint still in my ear, so uh, <laughs> if you're talking to me and it looks like I have paint all over me, that's why. I will say one of the great gifts God gives to people that I've learned at school is you would think, I, I can't explain this, you would think that if you're facing off against middle schoolers or high schoolers, basically anything, that as like a 30 plus old person, you would just lose. It just feels like that should happen. Like you play basketball and you're like, you practice basketball, uh, you know, two hours a day, every day you're at like peak level, your metabolism's crazy. Like, you, you know, you should destroy me. And for some reason that does not happen. God is like, no, I'm gonna let you older people continue to win. Uh, and so uh, paintball is usually a joyous time for me to punish students for their <laughs> academic failures. Anyway, uh, no, it's a lot of fun. Um, and the kid who absolutely destroyed me last year was on my team this year, so we did great. All right. So we've been going through this series on Acts uh, called um, Family History, and the idea has been we've been looking at what was the early church like to get our cues from them and see how we should live and how we should approximate the gospel for our time. And in a lot of ways, they faced a much more difficult time than we currently uh, preside in. The... Uh, the antagonism that they faced was a lot more fierce and more costly. They lived in a really stressful time. They did not have what we have, the ability to look and see a lot of the story and say, like, oh, well, this is how it's going to go. This was the early church. They couldn't look back and go, well, you know what? This is what God did for the Christian church right at the beginning. This was the beginning. So things that were happening is like kind of the first time. This is, this is how God is going to treat us. And what we see as we look back is we see a lot of faith on display, and we see this kind of upside-down kingdom. And that upside-down kingdom is not ever on more display than it is here in Acts 12. I thought about kind of breaking it up piecemeal, but it's just such an awesome story. We're just going to read it all together at once. Uh, so let's do it. This is Acts 12. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. I don't think I need to contextualize it too much. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, and the brother of, killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. 
It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your kingdom. Acts is nothing but a constant, constant reminder that your kingdom is not the world's kingdom, that it does not work the same way. Help us to have ears to hear, and in Jesus' name, amen. So let me take you back to a time, 1998, which amazingly is now like 23 years ago, so don't think about that too long. Uh, one of the big movies from that year was Jim Carrey's movie, uh, The Truman Show. And this was a big hit, and I enjoyed it very much. And the premise of The Truman Show was there's this producer named Christoph, and Christoph decides he's going to run, like, the ultimate reality show. And this was actually before kind of Survivor and reality TV became a big thing. And he was going to build this entire set, this, like, encapsulated world. It was like a dome with all these uh, town in it, all these things. And he would fill it with actors, and then he would go adopt a child, and this child's name was Truman Burbank, and they raised the child uh, on this set. And cameras are everywhere, and the idea is that at any point when you're watching TV, you can flip to the Truman Show, and you can watch Truman's life, whatever he's doing, and just follow along. And this goes on for, you know, until he's in his 20s or so, he's raised by actor parents, he marries an actress wife, all these kinds of things meant to communicate to him that uh, he's in a real world and not some kind of false world. They keep the truth from him that he is actually on a set. If Truman isn't there, the town isn't moving. Occasionally he'll catch little glimpses where people are kind of set up, not doing anything, and then he shows up and suddenly everybody starts shopping or doing whatever they were supposed to be doing. Uh, he is the literal main character of the world that he exists in. And what's interesting about the movie is that when Truman realizes that he is the main character, he hates it. He hates being the main character. He fights and escapes from the simulated world where he's the protagonist, and he wants to enter the world where he is just another person. 
for Truman being the main character is a curse he doesn't want. And he says at one point, it feels like the whole world revolves around me and everyone seems to be in on it. The trailers back in the day asked the question. They opened up with, what if you were watched every moment of your life? And ironically, back in the day, this was presented as a bad thing, right? This is a horror scenario. You're watched all the time of your life. The Truman Show clearly did not anticipate the current moment. Kristoff, the, the producer and part of the movie, brags that they have about 5,000 cameras spread around the set, but he could have never competed with the amount of cameras we carry around with us all the time. And while Truman risks his life to get away from that camera's gaze, we willingly record ourselves as many minutes of our days as possible. Apparently in 1998, being the main character was a nightmare. In 2021, it's all we want. The internal research of Facebook and Instagram and the lives of celebrities have taught us what happens when we believe we're main characters. It breaks us down. We can't get live up to the pressure of the main character, right? It untethers us from reality. If you haven't been following some of the recent studies that have been released in the Wall Street Journal on the internal research from social media, Facebook, Instagram, read it. It's interesting. And it communicates what Jim Carrey, the actor, eventually said many years after The Truman Show, in an interview, he said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. And yet, no matter how many people come back from that abyss, no matter how many mental health we dis disorders we develop from staring at ourselves days on end, we still want it. We want to be the main character so badly. Uh, my students, occasionally I'll quiz them about this, and the presiding sentiment is like, I know a lot of people are, have everything they could ever want and they're unhappy, but that wouldn't happen to me. I am the exception for that story. At the end of the day, we very, very badly want to be God. We are tempted to take God's glory as our own. But the Christian gospel has this oddly comforting answer to that. You, me, we are not the main character of the show. We're not the main character. And weirdly, this has a kind of <sighs> effect, I think. Ecclesiastes, which you guys have studied, the author says after searching for a meaning of life, he finally says, you know what, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. And there's a little bit of relief in that, I think. We are not the Messiah. Eat, drink, work, serve. Okay. So we look at a few characters here that two of which, I think, understand that they are not the main character, and one does not. And so I want to look at some applications for us, and I want to say that because it's God's kingdom, it's not ours, we do not seek our own glory. And because it's God's kingdom, we pray. Because it's God's kingdom, we sleep. And because it's God's kingdom, we give God the glory. So let's start with this. Because it's God's kingdom, we pray. And the story opens up with Herod Agrippa I. This is not... Um, Herod from the Gospels, but he is related. Herod has learned that the Jewish leaders of the day are set against Christianity. And I want to say this up front, because I think if we read it, uh, when it says it pleased the Jews, I want to say that this is not meant in a prejudiced way, that the Christians of this day, Peter, Christ himself, all these we're looking at are Jewish people. They're referring to the Jewish leaders, okay? So we're not drawing that distinction. 
But Jesus and the disciples, or Jewish people, it's not a prejudice dig. So, but Herod gets to work, and he decides, I'm going to please the Jewish leaders of the day by starting to wipe out Christianity, and he kills James. Now, I want to sit on this for a second because it happens really fast. It's one verse. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and then we just move on, and that's it. Well, there's a big story that leads up to verse 2, the killing of James. What do we know about James? Well, we know one thing. We know that he, like us, occasionally wrestled with the desire to be the main character. And a famous story about James, he and his brother John approach Jesus and they say, Hey, Jesus, can you let us sit at your right hand, one of us at your right hand and the other at your left hand, when you're in glory? They sneak around behind the the other disciples are like, hey, just between us, when this is all said and done, can we be top disciples? Can that be us? Needless to say, this did not make them the most popular disciples when they did this. And what they were asking was, hey, Jesus, make us the main character. But Jesus gives an interesting answer. He told them, you don't know what you're asking. You don't understand how this works. You don't understand the kingdom of God. And then he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? In other words, do you want to matter in the kingdom of God? Then follow me. Follow me even when it leads to suffering. And he gives the key to understanding all of this a moment later. Jesus says, you know that those who are considered rulers, the Gentiles, lord it over them. And the great ones exercise authority over them, but it will not be that way with you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is not in Acts 12, but his fingerprints are all over it. When Herod shows up, he is the exact picture of that ruler that Jesus is talking about, who exercises authority and lords it over many, and people are afraid of Herod and what he does. I mean, if you're looking at 12, 1 through 5, Herod is dominating this passage, and he's terrifying. James is one of the first disciples to die, right, outside of Judas. He's one of the first to die. This is a big step. The Christian church is in serious trouble. And he kills James. And I find the smallness of this passage poignant because, and I think, I think James would have liked how small it was, Right? that he is the one who asks to be the main character and he dies in this aside. We don't get this long passage about his death or reflecting on his life, but what happened to him in reality? James went from this earth to the face of God himself. And I'm sure he heard those words given to us through Christ, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. He has drunk the cup. He's been baptized with the baptism of Jesus. And he's now with his king. But Herod's not done. And when he realizes that, oh, James is dead, and he gets some positive reinforcement, people begin cheering him on. He says, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to, what about Peter? He seems like the big guy. We'll steal him. And that's kind of where we leave off. Herod's dominated the passage. He's powerful in charge. He's coming for the church. He's got Peter. But then we get this little moment in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. But earnest prayer was made for him. And God steps in. 
The church is not the main character. They know it. And as Herod comes in, they pray to God and say, main character, time for you to step in and do your thing. J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, one of my favorite concepts that he came up with, he wrote that, uh, he coined this phrase called the long defeat. I don't know if you've heard this before, those of you who've read any of Tolkien. And he argued that much of life feels like a long defeat. You just kind of do good things, and frequently you don't see the results. Uh, you go day in, day out to the same Bible study. You go day in, day out to the same charity, all of these things, and it doesn't feel like it quite has the impact you hoped. But what he connected to it was this other idea called the eucatastrophe. And the eucatastrophe works like this. The eucatastrophe for him is when everything looks totally lost, when it just could not get any worse, the heroes arrive. The horn blows in the west. Gandalf shows up on his horse. The riders of the Rohirrim show up. I think that's where we live as Christians. We live in what feels like a long defeat a lot of the time. We put in the work, we pray, we frequently feel the absence of God. We're not sure if what we're doing has meaning or value or purpose. But what the Bible reminds us over and over and over is God loves the eucatastrophe. He loves when uh, the wife is barren and then she gets pregnant because of what God has done. He loves when the church is threatened and then he shows up. The glory is God's. He is the eucatastrophe. If we're honest with ourselves, I think that most of us are not the prayer warriors we wish we could be. And I expect a lot of that is because we still don't actually really think it's God's kingdom or we think God's kingdom still works the same way as every other kingdom. And we spend most of our times praying for those things that are kind of worldly power things, right? Um, my students are always, you know, praying, help me get a good grade on this, help me get into a good college, right? Help me accrue power in kind of the worldly way. But this is God's kingdom. And if it's God's kingdom and we're not the main characters, the most powerful thing we could do is pray, right? Father, show up. You who love the eucatastrophe, feels like a long defeat, show up, surprise us, pray. And so the church in this situation, they pray. So because it's God's kingdom, we pray. Because it's God's kingdom, also, we sleep. This is my personal favorite right now as a father of four children. All right. Deep, deep in the prison between two soldiers, we find Peter. And is there almost like a hilarious amount of overkill done here to protect Peter? He's like chained between two people. He's got four sentries. He's got several gates. It's like, is Peter Rambo? You know, what are we, what's about to happen? And I think as I was thinking about it, I wonder if in Herod, the back of his mind is like, you know, this whole Christianity thing started because some people just couldn't keep track of Jesus's body, right? He's like, if they had just taken more care over there, then maybe I wouldn't have to deal with all this mess. And so I am going to, I'm going to overdo this. Uh, Peter is not some great warrior, though he does get to chop somebody's ear off in the Gospels, which I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I was like, yeah, um, thought that was really awesome. Always disappointed that Jesus rebuked him for that. Like, oh, man. Okay. Anyway, that's another story. Uh, and so the Christian story, I think, has gotten Herod's head, and he's set up these massive army essentially to guard him and what is peter doing the night before his execution he's asleep i don't want to over sentimentalize this but i think it's important when jesus faced his own death in the garden of gethsemane he asked peter to pray for him and peter couldn't he kept falling asleep 
But Jesus does not sleep. He stands at the right hand of the God of the universe, interceding for his people. And because he does that, Peter sleeps. Peter can sleep. He sleeps because he knows of the intercession of Jesus. But he also sleeps because he's learned the same lesson that James learned. We read way back in Mark 8, Jesus told his disciples, hey, I'm going to have to suffer and die. And Peter takes him aside and says, what are you talking about? You're supposed to be awesome. You're this great ruler. You can uh, reproduce food. You can raise people from the dead. You're like military leader ex par excellence. You know, this is it. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Which feels a little harsh. Jesus loved Peter undoubtedly. But notice why he said that. What do we know? What can we guess, probably, is the thing that tempted Jesus the most. We know Jesus was 100% man, 100% God, and that he experienced temptation like all of us. When Satan tempts Jesus in the desert, the culminating temptation is, I'll give you the earth apart from the cross. I'll give you the earth apart from the cross. Satan's final temptation is like, I know how power works. Power works through strength and victory and glory, and I'll give it all to you. You don't have to do it through the cross. That's weakness. That's not what this is about. But Jesus rejects that. He's like, no, the kingdom of God works this way. It's going to work through suffering, through service, through weakness. So when Peter says to him, Jesus, not through the cross, he's voicing the plea of Satan. He's saying, this is how the kingdom works, right? It's through strength. It's through power. And if Peter still in this moment believed that the kingdom of God was through power, I don't think he'd be sleeping. How could he? The church is on the ropes. James is dead. Peter's about to die. And you don't think Herod's going to target the rest of the apostles? This could be the end of the church as we know it. But Peter knows that he's not the main character. and So he goes to bed and he sleeps. And God gets to work. He sends an angel, takes off the chains. I mean, Peter does nothing. Peter thinks he's asleep the whole time he does it. And he's given to the people, the church, that's praying for him. And what's amazing about that little moment, right? They're praying for this, and they still don't believe it. <laughs> they're praying for it, and when they think he's at the door, they're like, nah, it's not him. That's crazy. But God's the main character. Uh, my pastor in college, Sinclair Ferguson, who's incredible, but he once said this thing that kind of haunts me as a parent. He said that uh, parenting isn't always about spoken words, but it's about the atmosphere. Uh, he said that people create an atmosphere in their home that you remember, even if you don't remember all the words that people said. And I think all of us probably remember homes that we really love the atmosphere of the home. You just walk in it and it feels like you're like, ah, like you kind of relax and sink down into the space. Peter sleeps here because he knows he's in God's home. He's breathed in God's atmosphere. Now notice this though. Peter didn't sleep because he knew God would deliver him. James just died. Maybe he does die the next day. He has no guarantees. But he sleeps because he's not really afraid of death anymore. He fears God more than the world. He's more at home with God than anyone else, even if that's in a prison cell awaiting his execution. The application for that is simple. You're not the main character. 
It's not your movement. It's not your house. It's not your cause. So go to sleep. It's okay. You can sleep. The Lord of the house is going to take care of it. So then we come full circle. We come back to Herod. And think about basically, I mean, it's, it's kind of glorious. It feels like, it feels like, this to me feels like one of those Mickey Mouse shorts where like the bad guy looks really powerful and at the end everything has flipped and it's just kind of beautifully just, you know? At the beginning of this passage, Herod is in charge. He's killed one of the disciples. He's got Peter locked up. The church is on the ropes. And at the end, Peter has somehow escaped, which, man, wouldn't you just love to hear how they were trying to rationalize that? Uh, somehow, Peter has escaped. And now he's about to face his death. Just a total boom. He doesn't even know it. Herod has thought the whole time that he's humiliating the kingdom of God. He thought that he was judging the kingdom of God. He did not realize he was judging himself. Uh, those who really wrestle with gossip, right? Gossip is one of those things. Gossips think that they are speaking about other people, but they are speaking about themselves, right? They think they're saying so-and-so is really bad, but what they're really saying is I'm untrustworthy with people's names. Herod thinks he's saying the kingdom of God is doomed and will die, and he is saying I am doomed. He is judging himself. Herod has somehow let this Peter guy get away, but he's still Herod. He's still in charge. He's still a politician. He still knows what to do. He's doing his political work. And then we get this crazy moment in verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, we know from the historian Josephus that he had this terrible stomach ache, and he died about six days later. Luke contracts it all into one beautiful little bite-sized moment, right? He speaks it, worms, dead. Now, what's going on here? Well, occasionally, right, thy kingdom come really does happen in the scriptures. The kingdom really comes in a moment and reveals what is actually true. The power of the world is shown what it is, a failed attempt to become the main character. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. So remember what Herod forgot. The world does not exist to make our dreams come true. Our friends do not exist to make us feel special. The church does not exist to make us feel comfortable. And God does not exist to make much of us. His glory he will not give to another. And as the Psalms say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And the great irony, of course, of admitting that we're not the main character is the gospel is about Jesus bestowing all of this outrageous grace and glory on his people when we do not deserve it. So this is a thy kingdom come story. For a moment, God's kingdom bursts through. The poor, messed up sinners are delivered from death. The church is victorious, and the power-hungry ruler perishes. I was speaking with one of my students uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about a celebrity who had recently converted to Christianity. And this student is uh, not a Christian, though, interested, and mentioned, well, you must feel pretty good. I was like, about what? He's like, well, you know, the, that celebrity just converted and is a Christian. Isn't that probably good for the church? And I'm like, 
All right. I am really grateful that someone converted to Christ. But that's just not the ball game that Christianity plays, right? The Christian church is not about how many kind of cultural, powerful people can we get on our team so then we turn the tide. That's not how it works. It works through weakness, suffering, and death. It works through the long haul of beautiful ministry that people don't see, right? We're so easily tempted to celebrate those kind of big, visible cultural victories and just so far less are we tempted to praise God for the person who's just faithfully tithed every week and faithfully served every week and always there and doing those things. Those things like, aren't isn't that the spirit at work, right? That's the kingdom of God. So to end, I would say this. I'd give two applications. If you're a Christian, I find the story of James and Peter very comforting. Because here are two guys who just believe they're the main character. And if I'm honest with myself, that's kind of my basic position, right? I'm the hero of a lot of my stories. James and Peter are people who are frequently tempted to say, the kingdom of God works like this. It's about power. It's about this. But Jesus rebukes them, and they grow in grace. They're sanctified. It's real. James suffers the way that Jesus encouraged him to suffer. And Peter, the guy who is so stressed out there in the Garden of Gethsemane that he couldn't do what Jesus asked, the guy when somebody, even, even after all the get behind me Satan, when they show up to take Jesus away, he's drawing his sword, right? That's where he was. And now as he's going to his execution, he sleeps. That's sanctification for you. And the same spirit that sanctified James and Peter is the same spirit in you if you're a Christian. It's the same spirit drawing you towards the kingdom of God. When you hear that voice, that rebuke of Jesus, listen to it. It's the rebuke of a father who loves his children. So the charge for us is pray and sleep and accept the rebuke of Jesus. If you've not accepted Christ, I would say this. Being the main character can seem like a good deal, but I think it's a nightmare in the end. We are not the main character. And I think the more we try to make it that way, the worse our life becomes. And worse than that, it's not just a problem for us. I think it's a problem for our communities. And I think ultimately it's an attempt to take glory that belongs to God. So for those of you who haven't turned to Christ, I hope this is kind of a warning. You're not the main character. You can try all you want. I just don't think it's going to end very well. But we do have on the other side someone who loves us very, very deeply. Someone who pursued us and who grows us in grace. Who even when we are in our worst spot like Peter, he's with us. He loves us, and he lets us sleep. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the consistent story you tell us over and over, that your kingdom is different, that your kingdom goes through suffering, it goes through weakness, it goes through service, but it's also different because you are with us, that you suffered the absence of God on the cross, that we never have to that we enjoy the presence of God forever. Father, if there are some in this room who have spent a lifetime pursuing to make their name great, I ask that they would put that burden down, that they would rest from it, that they would breathe in the atmosphere of your home, of your kingdom. Father, some of us are Christians, and we still live this way. We still think it is about glory and power and all of that. And Father, I suspect that we're very stressed, we're very anxious, 
we don't feel your goodness. Help us to feel your goodness this morning. Help us to trust that you take care of all things. In Jesus' name, amen.